Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Think Peace with me, Max Burnell. I'm very excited to be bringing you this week's guest. Continuing with our exploration of artificial intelligence, we will shortly be hearing from Dr. Anders Sandberg, researcher at Oxford's renowned Future of Humanity Institute and founder of the Swedish Transhumanist Association. We talk about the recent progress of AI, with advances in neural networks and brain modelling, touch upon the slippery and mysterious concept of consciousness, and speculate where we might be headed with AI in the longer term. With somewhat controversial views, Anders believes that before too long, AI might not only reach human-level intelligence or the singularity, but potentially and very quickly accelerate past us in what is known as an intelligence explosion. Anders' colleague and collaborator at the Future of Humanity Institute, Nick Bostrom, literally wrote the book on superintelligence, a New York Times bestseller that inspired the well-publicised and grave warnings from Elon Musk and Bill Gates. All entirely captivating and ponder-inducing stuff coming up. So, without further ado, I proudly present Dr. Anders Sandberg, Think Peace, Episode 5. So, I'm Anders Sandberg, originally trained as a computational neuroscientist back in my native Sweden, but uh, for the past 10 years I've been at the Future of Humanity Institute at the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford. And my research centers about emerging technologies, what they might be able to do, the ethical and social impact of that, how this impinges on ethics, global risks, and what we should do about the future. So basically, what was it that sparked your interest with artificial intelligence? Um, what was it that grabbed mm. your imagination? Uh, so when I grew up in Sweden in the 70s, it was a fairly boring world, so I spent all my time digging through the science fiction shelves in the local library. And of course, I grew up thinking that artificial intelligence would be really interesting. Then I started working on uh, real artificial intelligence and realized it's much harder than it looks. But over the past few years, the whole area has taken off, actually. It's looking pretty promising, which is also a bit of a problem, because if it works really well, that's going to change our society rather profoundly. OK, so nice, sort of easy one <laughs> to, to get into. What exactly do we mean by artificial intelligence? Yeah, so I would like to define intelligence as the ability to solve problems to reach your goals when you don't know how to solve them from the start. So if you get put in a new situation, you have some objects, you have some actions you can take, and now you need to figure out a way to end up in a situation you think is a good one. That is intelligence. So for example, most chess programs, they're not really intelligent because we can only play chess very well. Try to get them to organize a traffic system or fly a plane, and we're gonna fail completely at it. So real artificial intelligence is general. However, most of the commercially useful intelligence you find in machines is of course just for one purpose. Mm, okay. So uh, might we be able to sort of describe very briefly, just sort of outline mm. the history and the main sort of landmarks in artificial mm. intelligence? Yeah. So people have been dreaming about tools that could work by their own uh, since time immemorial. Uh, you find reference in Aristotle to the idea that if we could just uh, talk to tools and make them do stuff, we wouldn't need slaves. But he goes on, well, we don't have such tools, so hence we need slaves. But people have been dreaming for a long time, and gradually we automated more and more. 
But up until relatively recently, our tools were just doing something repetitious that human needed to control them. Thanks to computers, you can now make systems that actually observe their environment and make decisions based on that. So in the 50s, people actually coined the term artificial intelligence. Alan Turing had uh, started the field by uh, writing this amazingly good paper in 1951, where he demonstrated that saying that a machine can think is actually not a crazy thing. Today, we would say that's a relatively modest claim, but back then it was revolutionary. And then in the early days, in the 50s and early 60s, people were making these big mainframe computers play various games and do very simple tasks. And they were amazingly optimistic. They believed within a generation we're going to reach human level. And then they discovered how hard it was. Uh, there have been several AI winters, periods where artificial intelligence doesn't seem to be doing much. It's stuck and nobody wants to get funding to that uh, overhyped area. And then something happens and you get out of the winter and you get a new wave. So we've been going through several of these optimistic and pessimistic phases. So back in the 80s, neural network burst onto the scene. We found a new way of representing information. People were working on expert systems that could do useful things in medicine. And then it didn't pan out that much. So then you got a period of quiet. And now we have another summer. People are really doing interesting things with deep neural networks. Machine translation is a big deal. Google, Facebook, Baidu and all the others are investing huge amount. And people are again noticing that automated cars, uh, they seem to be doing pretty well. A lot of jobs are being changed by computers. So the hype and fear is at a peak right now. Yes, so that's it seems so. Um, now with the whole neural networks, this is essentially modeling in I don't know how much of a crude way or not, but modeling the way that the brain works mm. and mm. giving machines an ability to learn. Is, is, is that yes. the right way of thinking about yeah. it? Uh, so the idea with a neural network is to copy what is going on in the brain. So in the brain, nerve cells are connected to each other and they send signals. And when a nerve cell gets enough uh, signals, uh, it tends to fire off. Now the connections here can change. And that learning process is how we learn uh, our experiences. And you can copy that in a computer to make software that doesn't know from the start how to solve a problem. But you give it examples of solutions or uh, let it try things and tell it whether it did right or wrong. And then gradually it becomes better and better. Mm -hmm. So through trial and error it sort of reinforces the best way to go about solving the problem. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the main part of machine learning is taking a lot of examples and data and run it through the, the system again and again and again. And the big revolution over the past 10 years has been the growth of enormous data sets since you can mine the internet and give literally billions of examples to a neural network. Mm -hmm. And we have computers powerful enough to do this. Back when I started in this, uh, back in the 90s, we couldn't dream about this. And the network were also much weaker. There has been an enormous shift in power now. Yeah, that leads me on rather neatly to the next question I had, which is, what was so significant about Google DeepMind's victory in Go? Mm. Uh, so back in the 50s, people believed that if you can make a machine that plays chess really well, it must be intelligent. And uh, back in the 90s, of course, we gave up on that idea completely because Deep Blue had defeated Kasparov at chess. And it was pretty clear that Deep Blue was not a smarter being. It was just very good at chess. But people also said, yeah, but chess is not a complex game compared to some other games because the number of possibilities uh, are relatively small. Go 
is much wider, it's much more complex. You need real intelligence to play well there. And now, of course, the, the Google DeepMind demonstrated, no, you can beat that too. But the way Google DeepMind won was interesting. The program had uh, learned essentially to have an intuition for the board and its structure. And it learned that by playing against itself. It had been trained initially on a lot of good uh, Go games, but later on it was experimenting, exploring mm. this space. So uh, this system has a kind of general understanding of value. The most important part of the win is, however, that this is a fairly general method. It might be applicable to other games and other situations where you want to evaluate complex situations. So it's not just about playing games. It might be applicable to find the value of stock market options or uh, uh, surgery, surgical moves. Mm. I suppose games, have they've been tests for artificial mm. intelligence and they're quite neat in that they're rather enclosed systems and you can definitely win or you mm. definitely lose, you know, I suppose. Mm. It might be a bit more difficult with sort of more subjective, mm. fuzzy ideas. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, so one of the biggest problems in artificial intelligence is that uh, software tends to do well in well-defined toy worlds. Anybody who's been trying to build a robot quickly realizes that the world is messy in a very different way. And it has turned out that it's hard to solve the problems that even small children are pretty good at. Manipulating everyday objects in a, a dexterous way that is much harder than solving differential equations. Yes, okay, so again, rather neatly on to my next question, which is sort of, we've touched upon it briefly, but what are the major sort of strengths and weaknesses associated with AI currently? Um, and how does this relate to human intelligence? I've heard people discussing sort of narrow intelligence and then a sort of more general intelligence. Um, and even the term artificial stupidity entering the conversation a few times. How does that all yeah, So the more narrow you make your system, the better it can become at one purpose. And if you can train it well for that, uh, it can become amazingly powerful. Uh, but typically it needs to be very narrow. It might be about chess, it might be a diagnosis of particular diseases. If you want a system that is general, it's much harder to train it to be good at everything. We don't fully understand how to make general intelligence, and we're rather bad at common sense. So these systems quite often lack common sense, which is a real problem when dealing with the real world. Mm. Also, uh, typically you train machines by giving them lots and lots of data and examples. However, we humans can learn from a few examples. If, you, if a, a child shows you a few squiggles and tells you that these squiggles are foo squiggles and these are bar squiggles, you can very quickly tell the difference between foo and bar squiggles uh, with a glance. This is a very hard problem for machines, although there are interesting work on learning this too. So we have still have a long way to go before we get common sense, the ability to generalize from a few examples mm. and act very well in the actual world and perhaps this is particularly difficult in uh, recognition, the cats and dogs example mm. with the teaching a child the difference between a cat and a dog, it seems fairly obvious. But to a machine, I mean, they both, mm. they both have fur, they both have four legs. Mm. It's, uh, is it a mm. bit of a challenge to teach a machine mm. that, that difference? So in the traditional form of artificial intelligence, people tried to teach using logic. And then it was even harder to tell the difference between a cat and a dog. Because how do you express in words the difference? It's exceedingly hard. If you give a lot of pictures, you can start recognizing similarities in whiskers and the shape of ears, etc. But it's very hard to put in words and you need still a lot of examples to train. Meanwhile, kids 
quite quickly learn is probably because we're predisposed towards being good at classifying animals and other mm -hmm. things in our environment. So we still don't know how to do that properly yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, so broadly, where would you say obviously there's perhaps many artificial intelligences um, in specified areas, but uh, the field as a whole, what sort of, what level are we at now in terms of what we might be able to recognize? Mm. So the, the interesting thing is that uh, to saying, uh, talking about the level of artificial intelligence assumes that most machines have the same level of smarts, and that's not true. Mm. A Roomba vacuum cleaner is dumber than most slugs. It's following a very, very simple program, but it's doing its job quite well. A chess program might be running through a lot of calculation, but it's exceedingly narrow. Meanwhile, Google DeepMind has a re reinforcement learning agent that can learn how to play a lot of vintage computer games. It's not very good at conversation, but it can learn any game you plug it into, more or less. So, on one level you can say, yeah, we're far below human level. On another level, yeah, we solve certain problems with artificial intelligence that are impossible for humans to solve. But uh, overall, I think that we would say, yeah, it's relatively inflexible and stupid. It's nowhere close to a real general human. However, in terms of practicality, it's cropping up everywhere. Think about the language understanding happening uh, when you use uh, Siri or any of the other machine uh, uh, speech uh, systems, or the search engines, or the various tools being used by lawyers and doctors now to dig through data. So here we have parts of what the human are doing, it's just that we're not fully integrated with each other. Mm. It seems, um, at this point with, uh, when you're speaking to sort of these chatbots and everything, uh, on the one hand they say some things where you, you think, oh god, it almost seems mm. like there's a consciousness in there, but in other ways they're, they're quite stupid with their sorts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and we, human, we humans are very bad at telling whether something we're talking to is a real human or something else. Mm. We, we have evolved to think that if it talks and if it's somewhat human-like, then we latch on to all the human characteristics, mm. which means that we fool ourselves with chatbots quite well. So the chatbots have a relatively easy job. And they don't have to be terribly smart in order to convince us fairly well. But at the same time, the, the conversations never go anywhere. When you have a, a real conversation with a person, there is typically a beginning, middle and an end. There is a structure to it. Mm. And that has been rather harder to get into the chatbot because we do not truly understand what's going on. Okay, so um, I know uh, recently Google said that an area that it's going to start focusing on a little more is uh, AI and creativity. Mm. Why do you think this is? is it, can an AI be truly mm. creative or artistic mm. in a sense that we might understand mm. it? Yeah, so real creativity is about finding new possibilities that nobody had ever thought about mm. and then selecting one of these possibilities that is a good one. And just randomly generating stuff, computers are great at that and people have been doing computer art based on that for a very, very long time. But most of the output is of course not terribly great. Mm. The interesting thing happens when the system actually has some sense of what might be interesting. And this is a problem because it needs to be presumably interesting to the humans uh, uh, judging whether this is a successful system rather than interesting to the system itself. Mm. Uh, what a machine might find interesting is, uh, in some perspective might be utterly uninteresting to us. So in a sense machine creativity is more about imitating human creativity. And I think we can do some interesting things there using deep learning because taking a lot of data from the human world and seeing what humans tend to value and find intriguing or surprising. 
that can tell you where to look and machines are great at trying lots of possibilities and finding extremely unusual ones that humans would never have found. So I'm looking forward to see a lot of this output. But I'm not expecting it to be super creative. I think the real creativity happens when it actually understands the world, where you have a bit of common sense and then you get creativity that departs from common sense and into something really interesting. Mm. I know it's a bit of a side note, but some of the um, some of the images that Google projects are turning out at the moment, the turtles one, and some of the mm. incredible fractal yeah. images, are absolutely mm. stunning. Yeah, uh, so so those images are fantastic uh, because they're also giving us a glimpse of actually how the world might be perceived by a deep neural network, mm. which is a very alien world, and that is also why we're so fascinated by it because. Mm. There are some similarities. We recognize the turtles and dogs and strange ar architectural features. Some people might say that uh, it's reminded them of a dream or a drug trip. Mm. So there is enough overlap that we recognize something. At the same time, it's also utterly different from what a human would have done. Yes, oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so AI seems to be coming to a bit of a sort of head at the moment. Um, as you say, we're in a a period of summer for AI research. There's lots of distinct areas coming to fruition. Obviously, the mm. Google Go uh, victory we spoke about. Driverless cars mm. are very imminent. Um, language is starting mm. to get there. We've got translation. Chatbots are doing quite well. So, in your view, what is likely the next big step for AI? Uh, so I think a lot of what's happening in the lab right now is wild exploration. And it takes a while before that turns into a product that you can actually use. Uh, so I think what we're going to see is a lot be uh, better language interfaces, systems that can listen to you and do what you want. And the real challenge here is of course figuring out what do you want. That uh, problem uh, is now being pursued by research and I think if you can solve that, both there is a multi-billion dollar industry of course, because uh, figuring out what people want and then selling it to them, that makes you money. Mm. Uh, but it's also essential for making autonomous cars safer. You need to understand not just what the people in the car want to do, but also what people around the car want. I think another important challenge is uh, practical action in the real world. Hand-eye coordination, being able to uh, move around in a flat without knocking things over and fetching something, even if that means moving some books out of a place of a bookshelf and so on. That is very hard and we don't know how to do that yet. But if we were to be able to do it, it would revolutionize robotics. Uh. Yes, certainly. I think we have already touched on this, but um, could you describe the sort of broad differences between this sort of intelligence, um, narrow intelligence mm. rather, and this sort of general intelligence? Mm. And what, why is it that it's so difficult with mm. AI to sort of master yeah. this general intelligence mm. that we, we seem to mm. have? So when people started building uh, artificial intelligence, they had this idea that you can base it on planning. You have a current state of the world, you have a desired end state, and now it's just a search problem of thinking about what actions moves the world to the end state. The problem is the world is enormous. There are so many possibilities and so many sequences of action that you cannot search through them all. So for a long time, artificial intelligence was all about trying to search efficiently through all these possibilities. And a lot of it is still about that. The problem is the world is seldom well defined and while you're doing something you might get interrupted or something falls over, you get unexpected problems and this complicates things even more. Mm. This is why the traditional planning approach had a lot of problems. 
Another approach is to have systems that just gen generally learn how to behave. So you give them reinforcement. Whenever they get closer to a goal, they get a kind of positive signal. If we do something bad or stupid, they get a negative signal. And we figure out small parts of solutions and gradually find out how to explore the environment, how to become better at it. Uh, these uh, methods are more robust because if they get thrown off track, they will try to return to track in a proper way. But it's very tricky to make this generalize. If I want to get to the airport, first I need to leave the building, then I need to uh, take a bus, then I need to enter the airport. Taking a bus involves uh, buying a ticket and finding a seat and so on. Mm. All these tasks are hierarchical and as we grow up we learn how to do these small tasks. We cache them in the back of our minds and then we reuse them. This is still rather hard for machines to do. They need to learn small tasks so they can turn it into larger tasks. Mm. So you might want a cleaning bot, for example, how to learn how to clean uh, a dish uh, or uh, to vacuum the floor. And then you might want to tell it, clean the library. And then it will go there and do the appropriate actions that belong to cleaning the library. And then you might want to tell, clean the house. And then it will clean the kitchen and the library and the bedroom. Ideally, they should string it together in a useful way. And if there is suddenly a fire, the robot should presumably stop cleaning and rush to get everybody out of the house. This is tricky because it needs a big representation of the world and it needs to have a sense of what's important and not important. And that requires a lot of common sense. Yes. Are you personally sort of confident that we are going to attain human general intelligence? Or I think we are approaching human general intelligence in the long run. I, I can't see any reason why it couldn't be possible for software to do that. However, it might take a long while because there are some problems that might be tough. One is transfer learning. If I have learned how to clean uh, the bedroom, I can apply that knowledge also to clean the library. Uh, but to many machine intelligences right now, uh, there are totally different tasks. They don't recognize that there are so many similarities uh, between them. So uh, you can actually use what you learn for one purpose to another one. And this is, of course, why many analogies fail uh, when machines are trying to use it. We humans tend to find that, oh, I can use a solution from that domain in this new domain, and then I find a very effective way of doing it. So I think we're approaching artificial human level intelligence in the long run, but we don't know when it's going to arrive. It might be within 10 years. I don't think it's likely, but uh, it could happen. It might be that it takes more than 100 years. Uh, it's just that we have such a bad uh, track record of predicting artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, as a bit of a side issue, I find it quite interesting that uh, Ray, Ray Kurzweil mm. was quite a big figure in this area. And Kurzweil, I think, predicted 2045 yeah. and Turing 2050. Mm. Uh, it's, uh so it's interesting. Alan Turing <laughs> predicted uh, actually the year 2000. Uh, that, uh, uh, so Alan Turing in his 1951 paper, I think, predicted that by the year 2000, first people would not laugh when you talk about a thinking machine. Mm. He was right about that. And that a machine could pass the Turing test and convince a person that it was actually a real person. And maybe it has succeeded, maybe not. But we're not really convinced that we have intelligent machines. However, he was much more pessimistic about real human level intelligence, so that might be mid-century. Mm. Ray Kurzweil has based a lot of his predictions on the rate of advance of Moore's law and how much more powerful mm. computers are. But that's not a good guide necessarily, because just having a powerful computer doesn't mean anything unless you have the proper software. Mm -hmm. And the jumps in ability we have seen in software have been about ideas. 
and ideas are very unpredictable. Uh, you don't know that you're going to get a good idea until you have it. Mm -hmm. uh, which means that we know that over the next 20 years we're going to have some awesome ideas, but we don't know whether we're going to clinch the whole thing or whether it's actually going to be small awesome ideas and we actually need a hundred more ideas like that to reach human level. Okay, fascinating stuff. So, um, just going back onto the sort of artificial, sort of narrow intelligence kind of idea. Um, I, I know there seems to be a general kind of criticism. Uh, actually, one of your colleagues at Oxford, uh, Luciano Ferridi, um, came up with this idea of sort of, which is a term I believe he borrowed from engineering, of enveloping the world insofar as we've, rather than machines getting really a lot smarter, we've adjusted our own mm. world so that they're more comfortable within it. Um, what would you say to mm. that sort uh, of idea? So making a robot that can wash dishes is a really hard problem, but a dishwashing machine is a very simple machine. Mm. You just change the task into something that's easy to automate. Uh, but you can't do that with every task in society. So there are many tasks that are very hard to transform into something that's easy for a machine to do. And that means that even we need better machines or we need a better understanding of a task. Mm. A few years back, a local professor here at Oxford, Professor Newman, who's doing robotics, told me that if you give me a crisp problem definition, uh, my engineers can solve it for you. The important part here is the crisp problem definition. Any job that you can easily describe what it's about uh, can be replaced by machines. Most jobs, however, have a lot of weird components that fit together in a rather complex structure that m not even the people on the job quite understand, which is why it's actually rather hard to completely automate most jobs. Fascinating mm -hmm. point. Um, okay, so in regards to our attaining, or potentially attaining, human-level general intelligence, how are we going about it at the moment? What are the most promising mm -hmm. areas, in your opinion? So right now I think reinforcement learning is what you use machine learning methods to make agents that uh, work, work in an environment and learn what works, what doesn't work and try to gradually gain the skills. I'm also very interested in uh, attempts of actually copying brains directly, brain emulation. So this requires enormous amount of computing power and a lot of neuroscience uh, and right now we haven't even gotten a worm brain to work mostly because the, the worming question that we've been interested in uh, turns out to be rather hard to make good measurements from. If we had started with the British Pond's name, we would probably have been done, done by now. But here the idea is that you just copy the neural network inside a real organism and they use it in a machine. Mm. Um, so that's a, probably a slower and heavier approach, but uh, it also looks like there are no major hindrances for that. But it might turn out that we completely different approach. There's some work in statistics that uh, creates so-called generative models that seem to be very good at representing the world. But there's still some things missing. We know that we haven't figured out all the relevant parts yet. And, and that's one of the criticisms I've heard of the first uh, method you mentioned of sort of making a model or copying the brain at the moment. Uh, one of the criticisms you hear is that we don't yet understand um, the mind well enough to be mm. able to... So, so there is a fundamental misunderstanding people have that you need to understand the mind in order to copy it. That's a bit like saying you need to understand furniture and carpentry in order to put together an IKEA furniture. Mm. That's not true. You just need to follow the instructions and put together the parts in the right order. Which might be non-trivial, but uh, you don't necessarily need to understand what the parts are doing in order to get something that works. Mm. 
So if you were to copy a brain neuron by neuron, all the connections, you might not know what the neurons are for. But as long as they actually function in the right way in the simulation, you would get the same behavior. Mm. Now, we might, from a scientific and philosophical perspective, really care about what is intelligence, memory, consciousness. Uh, but this simulation will not tell you that. You just get something that behaves like the original, which might be useful on its own. So many scientists tend to think that that would be fairly worthless because I haven't learned what intelligence is. Although I would say from a practical standpoint, now we have a lot of copyable, disposable intelligence we can actually do a lot of experiments on. Mm. Uh, I've, I've heard people speak about the analogy of uh, flight. Mm. Uh, when we looked at nature for how to fly, we saw a lot of mm. things flapping their wings. When we eventually conquered mm. it, obviously we mm. have um, planes which yeah. do it in quite yes. a different way. So if you want to achieve artificial intelligence, looking at real brains is probably a good start. But the artificial intelligence you eventually build will probably not work like a brain. Mm. However, we have a good reason to believe that brains can do intelligence. We don't know what other systems can do intelligence. So it's a starting point. Yes. But it is indeed very much like looking for your keys under the lamppost because it's brightest there. Mm -hmm. So I, I suppose it, it helped us with flight to sort of in order to build the aeroplane wing, at least understand the differences in air pressure that were leading to bird soaring. So it, mm. did, it did require some yeah. kind of understanding uh, of it. So, so in the case of aeroplane, it was not just understanding how birds are soaring, but also how they land. That might be even more important, how you actually use the tail to control uh, and uh, the ruddering effects and so on. That was a key part of actually making sure that the first flight didn't end in a tragedy. Mm. Yeah, of course, very good point, very good point. Okay, so um, if we do attain human level intelligence, or indeed perhaps go beyond it, which is something perhaps we could speak about in a minute. So if we do manage to attain human level intelligence, has it, in your view, got the potential to become in any level conscious or aware of itself? Or? Uh, I think there is a difference between being aware of oneself and being conscious. Google, to some extent, must have a representation of a website called Google. Mm. After all, it's been crawling the net and there is a lot of links to Google. So in a sense, the entire Google search engine has some knowledge about that there exists a Google search engine. Is it aware of itself? Well, in some sense. I can imagine many robots having self-representations. And this might be very, very useful. But is that proper consciousness? Normally when we talk about consciousness, it's more about the redness of red, the blueness of blue, mm -hmm. that there is something to be that kind of entity. Mm -hmm. We are conscious, we think other people are conscious, we think that animals might be conscious. It's very unclear whether Google is conscious. And I don't see any reason why it might be impossible for a machine to be conscious. But at the same time, we don't really understand very much about consciousness. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an open question. However, you might not need conscious to be intelligent. Mm. I suppose it comes back to this argument of whether consciousness emerges from this, uh, from this physical thing we have in our skull, or if it's something different from mm. that. You know? uh, What's so your personal take yeah. on it? Uh, so personally, I'm a functionalist. I think uh, if you have a system that performs uh, computations in the right way, they can be conscious. If you do the right computation, that computation would be my mind. Mm. So I have no problem thinking that I could be replicated inside a computer if it was run in the right computation. Now, the problem here is 
What do I base this on? Well, I have various philosophical reasons, but that's relatively weak. We know that philosophy of mind is hard, and we've been surprised a number of times by uh, reality. So one shouldn't be too overconfident about anything about this. Certainly. Um, now, the singularity is an idea, or the technological singularity is an idea that's often spoken about. And I know one of your colleagues, Nick Bostrom, um, and others, uh, yourself included perhaps, speak of a coming superintelligence. Um, could you describe what's sort of meant by these mm. terms and um, mm. what sort of impact mm. that might have upon our society? So when we, when we build machines and automate tasks, it's very rare for the machines to be just at a human level. Uh, once you make a motor, it's very odd to say that the motor cannot be stronger than a human. If you make a car, it will move much faster than a human. Mm. If you do computations on a computer, they are much faster than humans. So if you could do intelligence in a machine, there is no reason why that should stay just within the human range. Mm -hmm. You might be able to not just run it faster in many copies, but it might be able to think deeper. So clearly, if we could make artificial intelligence, there is no reason why it would end up anywhere close to the human level. Now, another aspect here is that if you can make artificial intelligence that can do what humans can do, well, humans can make artificial intelligence. So you could make machines that make other machines including, if we're good, better machines. Mm -hmm. So now you might get a runaway situation. It's been called an intelligence explosion by I.J. Good, a statistician that was working with Alan Turing. Now, that might be a very quick process, or it might uh, be a question of years or even decades and transform society. But people have been calling something like this a technological singularity. Suddenly we go from a world where there are just a few billion human minds to a world where there is a lot of superintelligence, potentially far, far more powerful than humans. And we can't really say much about such a world. And it's going to be a rather wrenching transition, even if it takes several decades and involves all of the world economy, it's still going to be a very much before and after. So how big a change would you, would you say that this is, if you're trying to communicate it mm. to, to our audience? Well, about seven million years ago, we had a shared ancestor with the chimpanzees, and they probably lived a bit like the chimpanzees do today, uh, foraging in the forest, avoiding big predators. But while the chimpanzee branch of our family tree remained like that, we got slightly more intelligent. Not much more. Our brains are fairly similar to chimp brains. And we took over the world. We chopped down the forest, we're flying through space and air, we got nuclear weapons, we almost wiped out the big predators, and the fate of the chimps is in our hand. Uh, and that was a small increase in brain power and communication ability. I think if we get a technological singularity, it's going to be bigger than that. And that might of course be a bit unsettling, because uh, this transition was not necessarily good for the chimps, or maybe even for the global environment. So if we handle a technological singularity badly, things might go extremely wrong. Mm. I say uh, <laughs> it's, it could be potentially quite worrying, couldn't it? Mm. Um... Uh, and one of the big problems here is that we don't understand very much about this kind of process. We're talking about possible technologies. Mm. We don't fully understand what it would take to make a human-level artificial intelligence. Mm. So making predictions beyond that is even harder. Yeah. But it seems that the sheer magnitude of this makes it worthwhile to actually try to think carefully about it, which is what we're trying to do here at the Institute. Uh, conversely, all the, the technological singularity might be a very good thing. It might mean that we actually solve all the big important problems and can live happily ever after. 
but we need to understand better what we can do now to steer in a, a better direction. Mm. Uh, with this uh, intelligence explosion idea, it's a sort of uh, iterative mm. self-improvement, so with each generation it gets better and better. Um, and as you say, it, could, it really could sort of take off. Um, so how quickly, you know, in a short-term scenario, how, mm. how soon are we talking? We don't know. So this is one of the biggest problems, actually, that we have no idea how far away we are from mm. even human-level general intelligence. And we don't know how fast an intelligence explosion could be. On one hand, we have some people thinking that maybe this is about, uh, on the speed of software. It's literally a computer updating itself and rewriting. So in a few hours, it has bootstrapped itself to uh, godlike superintelligence. Others say, no way, I don't trust that. Intelligence requires knowledge and experience from the real world. You're going to need machines interacting with the world. So it's going to be on the time scale of the global economy. It's going to take years. It's still going to be a very fast historical transition, but it's going to be a much bigger and it's going to involve everybody. And right now, we don't have good tools for thinking about this. That's something we're trying to investigate and see. Can you prove things? There might be theorems in machine learning telling us how fast a system can learn. There might be an economic uh, argument showing how quickly you can kind of update even the internal economy of a piece of software. Mm. So this is a great deal of unsolved problems right now. Uh, from our human perspective, it looks like it's not imminent but it's not necessarily super far into the future either. Yes, okay. Um, I wanna, in your view, sort of in your, on your personal sort of level, are you, are you personally optimistic about our future with AI? Um, or do you think, you know, potentially there is a danger, as some predict, that will sort of make ourselves to be defunct almost? Mm. Uh, Stephen Hawking recently said uh, that AI could spell the end of the human race. Is there reason to be worried? Or yeah, I think I, I'm optimistic, but I think there is reason to be worried. So as I see it, uh, I don't think the status quo with humans being the only intelligence on the planet is going to remain indefinitely. I think we are going to, in some sense, creating successor species or uh, sibling species, whether they're biological or artificial. And that could be tremendously dangerous. I see a real risk that we could wipe ourselves out this way. However, I also see a pretty good chance that we get through this, either by muddling through or actually by acting uh, wisely and getting a glorious future. Mm. So I'm kind of hoping for the best, but uh, it's useful to research so we can prepare for the worst. Yes, certainly. <laughs> that seems to have done us very well in the past. Um, now, you were a, a signatory, I believe, of the Future of Life Institute open letter, along with uh, Stephen Hawking and some other prolific mm. academics. Could you describe exactly the aims of this document? Mm. So for a very long time, artificial intelligence has struggled as a field with, let's make more capable machines. And that has been hard enough. People, enormous number of academics have spent lifetimes trying to make slightly better software. And it has become significantly better. But the focus was always on capacity, capability of doing things, mm. rather than making sure it was safe and beneficial. People have been worried about uh, the artificial systems being unsafe since before there was computers. If you think about Frankenstein or CapEx's uh, RUR play, they were about robot rebellions before there was even the concept of robot. Uh, but inside the field, people have been mostly interested in, well, let's sure the, the industrial robots don't squish people. That was kind of extent of safety thinking. 
But if you take it seriously that it could succeed and make powerful, useful systems, then we need to be careful so they're actually safe to use and they help mankind. Mm. So the thinking behind this open letter was to point out that this is a very valid research area. How do I make a capable system behave in a safe and beneficial way? And it's not easy at all, because what is safe? It's not like staying in your bed all day is the solution to living in an unsafe world. A safe car is not necessarily a car that has all the safety features. Probably the safest car is one that never moves. That's kind of useless. Beneficial is even harder. If a robot is constantly feeding me great food, that might be delicious, but I'm going to get fat and get health problems. I might want a robot that actually stops feeding me uh, after a while, even though I might say, give me a, another piece of cake. Mm -hmm. And this gets even more problematic when we start thinking about uh, smart artificial intelligence. A super intelligent system that could fulfill our wishes. Well, any fairy tale is full of stories about humans are very bad at wishing wisely. You want a system that actually figures out what you really meant or what you should have meant if you knew what the system knew. This is a very tough problem, it's going to take a long time to solve. Uh, so there is a kind of race here between the capabilities of machines versus our ability to construct systems that are having a good user interface, that are nice, that understand us well. Mm. Uh, I suppose you could even make the observation that perhaps we might have even been thinking about the dangers before we even really mm. thought about intelligent machines. Isaac Asimov's uh, The Three Rules for Computers and everything. I believe that came before um, Turing's... No, it was after. Well, it was, but, uh, after, no, okay. well, it was almost simultaneous, yeah. actually. It's complicated. Uh, yeah, so Asimov's uh, laws of robotics are interesting because he made them up to make good stories. Mm. But the moral of his stories are quite often that if you just follow these simple rules, you get totally unpredictable behavior. It's very hard to tell uh, what a robot that is programmed not to harm people will do in order to not harm people. Mm. Uh, and uh, this is already a demonstration that the problem is very deep. You can't just give orders to a robot to behave itself because many of the implications are beyond you. So you need to have it learn somehow what is a reasonable behavior. But how do we even define reasonable? We humans have been arguing for thousands of years what moral and reasonable behavior is. Uh, and now we need to kind of solve this problem and put it into the machines. Preferable before they get so powerful that they're very dangerous. Yes, <laughs> that would certainly be uh, preferable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so uh, to some extent we tend to learn of course from our mistakes. When uh, there is an industrial accident, uh, we look at what went wrong and fix it. And for a lot of artificial intelligence systems, we are just going to do that. Oh, the stock market crashed. Oh, let's uh, fix the trading bots. Hmm, that uh, fighter jet crashed. Okay, we need to update the software. The problem is, of course, when it's really integrated with our lives, we can't just do that simple update. Mm. If it turns out that the global economy is wrong, you can't just patch it. Fascinating. Um, so could we sort of... Very, I think you might have mentioned some of them, but what are the main sort of potential risks that we're looking at with this? Mm. Um, I, I know I've heard discussed um, this paperclip factory mm. idea. Mm. Um, could you explain that? Yeah. Uh, so, so my paperclip example, I think I was the original inventor, but I'm not entirely certain. It, it, it's a very simple uh, wizard's apprentice uh, story. So you have an artificial intelligence uh, that is very smart, and you tell it, make me as many paperclips as possible. 
Now the goal of the system is to maximize the number of paper clips and it figures out various plans uh, to do that. Some of these plans might involve becoming more powerful so it can more easily make lots of paper clips. And then it figures out a good plan for turning the Earth and then the rest of the universe into paper clips. And this is totally reasonable given its goals. It doesn't care about anything but ma maximizing paperclips. Now, the really tricky part here is that if it's very smart, it's going to realize that this is not what Anders meant. However, it doesn't care because the goal is setting a maximum number of paperclips, not making Anders happy. Mm. And uh, it might realize that humans are going to try to resist being turned into paperclips. So it's going to make a little sub-goal, stop humans from stopping me. Not because it doesn't uh, like humans, it doesn't care, it just wants to make sure that the paperclip manufacturing process goes smoothly. It might even realize that maybe actually Immanuel Kant was right, this is totally immoral, uh, but following morality versus making paperclips. Well, paperclips wins. A human would never behave like this because we get tired, we have other goals, it's very rare that somebody is so obsessed that they only try to do one thing. But a machine can of course be absurdly single-minded. The paperclip maximizer is a simple example of what can go wrong. I think if something actually goes wrong, it's not going to be as simple as that. But it shows the problem of constructing a system that just tries to maximize something. It's dangerous. So another approach might be to say, let's make a system that is happy to do something good enough and then stop. But it turns out that there are some problems that these good enough maker systems realize that uh, one way of making uh, enough paperclips is to become a maximizer. Then I'm guaranteed to ma uh, get, get a good enough number of paperclips. Again, a human wouldn't think like this. Mm. But uh, you can demonstrate that certain pieces of software would find this totally reasonable. I think it's a very neat, neat way of looking at it. I think that really caught my my attention. Yeah, right. and the fundamental problem is that any command you give to a machine, you want it to understand it like you do, but the machine is very alien. It thinks about the world in a different way, and it might even interpret a command in a fundamentally different way because of this. It might even understand what you want, but that's not necessarily what it's actually doing. Constructing a machine that is motivated to do what you truly want is a surprisingly tricky problem, and this is keeping both uh, AI programmers and philosophers up at night. Yes. So I suppose that's, a, that's an example of this sort of artificial stupidity kind of idea, that's something that seems obvious to us. Is yeah. If it's not explicitly laid out, then you're sort of opening the door for all sorts of uh, unintended consequences. Okay, so um, what do you say to people that sort of say, you know, this is a science fiction idea, um, you know, and it might happen, it might not, but it's probably so far off that it's currently just a distraction from the bigger problems that we have. Well, people were saying uh, nuclear weapons were uh, science fiction back in even the early 40s, actually. And uh, they were kind of completely wrong, and in a sense almost dangerously wrong, because it would have made sense for the world to prepare a bit for the arrival of nuclear weapons. So, the, the cons normally when somebody proposes to build something, the conservative thing is to assume it's not going to work. But if somebody proposes to build something that could be dangerous, it's rather dangerous to assume it's not going to work, I don't need to take any safety precautions. So the sensible thing is to say there is a slight chance that it works. What are the consequences? What should we do based on that? 
and in general, science fiction might not be a good guide at uh, how the future is going to turn out, but it's good for broadening your mind and seeing a lot of very different possibilities. And I think most people think about the future in a too narrow perspective. They believe that the future has flying cars, jetpack, a bit more pollution, maybe people are looking, dressing like in Blade Runner or something. It's like a now, but slightly different. But the future could be radically different. If you go back a century, uh, the, pe the people uh, in 1916 would be shocked, horrified and exhilarated by our current world, which is so much bigger, so much stranger and maybe in many ways much more dangerous than they could possibly imagine. So I think it's useful to imagine that the future could go extremely far, both in the positive and negative direction, quite often at the same time. I suppose that, that's always <laughs> yeah. the way it seems to go, isn't it? Um, I suppose you have spent rather a lot of time thinking about the sort of really long-term effects of all this and the possible outcomes. Um, out of all the sort of options that you see, what do you consider to be the most likely to happen in the long run? I think the most likely is that we find that Sharp intelligence explosions are probably hard to do and rare, uh, but we're going to have a broad intelligence explosion. Essentially, life on Earth is going to go from not very intelligent to human level intelligent to a world of super intelligent technological life that is going to be expanding out into the universe. So on a global scale, there is a phase transition going on right now. But from a human perspective, this might actually take centuries. I think it's very likely to be fast. Uh, it might be much faster than previous transitions like the Industrial Revolution. And even if I'm wrong about the amount of superintelligence, I think we're going to see the next few decades to be rather turbulent because we're going to change a lot of assumptions about intelligence, machinery, and nature. And we humans are going to be stuck right in the middle here. We are going to have some rather wild political and uh, social debates about how do we want to change ourselves. And I suppose that really is it sort of comes down to that in the end. It, for all the technology and advancing a potentially a new life form, it really ultimately comes down to us asking them what our place in the world is and, and what it means to be human. And I think a lot, that seems to be what grabs a lot of people mm. about this. In many ways, uh, robots and artificial intelligence are mirrors. Mm. We use them to reflect on ourselves. Uh, we both try to make something like us and we fear a bit of what we're seeing in the mirror because we also recognize some of our darker sides. But it's also a chance to actually look in the mirror and try to see, can we improve ourselves? Yes, certainly. Um, yeah, I think we've covered that one actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, am I correct in thinking that you're, uh, you consider yourself a, a transhumanist? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, kind of. Uh, yeah, I founded the Swedish Transhumanist Association. I've been involved in a lot of transhumanist organizations. So I guess in some sense I have to be a card-carrying transhumanist. <laughs> But then again, being in the philosophy department means that I get to be a gadfly and annoy my transhumanist friends endlessly by pointing out various flaws in reasoning and new possibilities. Yes. So, so very, very broadly, uh, what's the general mm. philosophy of transhumanists? Mm. I know a lot so, of people uh, aren't entirely sure what, mm, what yeah. that means. So the humanistic view is that humans matter and we can make the human condition better, for example, by democracy and rational thinking and uh, education. Transhumanism say, oh, and well, we can also improve our biology by genetic engineering or why not using cognition enhancing drugs or other changes to ourselves to become more long lived, smarter and more emotionally balanced and so on. Mm -hmm. So basically, transhumanism is about questioning the human condition and saying, do we want to keep these parts or do we want to change them? 
is there anything good about having a limited lifespan? Would the uh, human lives actually be much better if we had unlimited lifespans? It's fascinating that we're the, fir we're the first form of life, at least mm. that we know of, um, that's got to this stage where we can start to engineer ourselves. Mm. And yeah, uh, and it's an interesting thing. Humans have wanted to change themselves uh, since the, the first uh, written epics. The Epic of Gilgamesh is partially about King Gilgamesh's search for eternal life. Uh, but up until recently, there was very little we could do. Now we started to get the tools. We're still very imperfect. Uh, you certainly don't want to use current genetic engineering too much. Uh, but we're getting tools to improve and modify ourselves. And we are now starting to question, of course, what directions are good? What does it mean to be a proper human? Or what parts of humanity do we want to keep? And which ones do we want to get rid of? Mm -hmm. It might be that uh, getting rid of cruelty, taking delight in somebody else's pain, that would really improve us quite a lot, even though we would then become a slightly different species. Yes, fascinating stuff. Okay, so in summary, um, in summary, what sort of final message would you like to leave mm. our audience mm. with? And how would you convince mm. people that it's really worth thinking mm. about mm. these potential yeah. futures? So it's worth recognizing that the Industrial Revolution was essentially about uh, steam engines and other tools, as well as some economic institutions that started to grow the economy tremendously. And over a span of two centuries, it transformed society endlessly. It uh, moved 90% of the population from farming into industry and so on. It caused wars and upheavals. Now, the next industrial revolution might be around the corner, when we automate a lot of uh, mental tasks using artificial intelligence. And that might take just a few decades, but it might have just as much history and drama as the entire industrial revolution. So the challenge might be that we're going to have a rather turbulent future here. I think we're going to have very good results from it. But we need to partially take short. We need to pay attention to what's going on and discuss with each other. Where do we actually want to go? What is acceptable? What's unacceptable? What should we be pushing for and what should we be resisting? Fascinating stuff. Is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, well, a final point is that it's very hard to stop technology. You can't just say, oh, we don't want that. We're never going to use or invent that thing. Typically, if it can be invented, people will invent it. But what we can do is change the ordering of technology. If we see dangerous technologies, we can try to invent technologies that make them safer and try to push for that so they arrive before we get it. We can try to you know, prevent, for example, the misuse of synthetic biology by making better uh, a healthcare system, a better uh, pathogen monitoring. And we can protect against bad forms of artificial intelligence by developing safe and beneficial artificial intelligence before them. Mm. So on the whole, you'd say it's good to be optimistic. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I sleep well at night. Uh, I spend the days thinking about how the world might end. And I feel rather happy about that because I get to do something about it. And I think we're going to come out fine from it. Uh, it's just that, well, it's useful to be prepared. So there you have it. Anders makes some seriously interesting points and has definitely forced me to reevaluate how seriously I consider the prospect of super intelligent machines. I might not look at a paperclip in quite the same way ever again. Next week, we'll dive deeper into the rabbit hole of AI and we'll be hearing from Dr. Thor Magnusson. He uses AI techniques to make some really interesting, if not slightly eerie music, so be sure to stay tuned for that. If you'd like to get in touch, as ever, send an email to contact.thinkpiece at gmail.com. 
find us on Facebook and Twitter, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud. And now, we're even available on iTunes for all you lovely Apple people. So, thanks for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank <laughs> you.